Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Don, and Dude. Headed to the 90s, living in a wild, wild west. Wild west. I remember that song. <laughs> <laughs> it's Album Nerds Podcast. I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me. Andy, what's up, my man? Yo, yo, bro. It's a 411 with you, buddy. 411. Oh, my God. That means information, folks. 411. Don, how you doing, man? <laughs> Hello, in 90s reference. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fill that in later. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so this is the Album Nerds podcast. We love talking about albums. That's what we're going to do today. So we have a great show for you. We're going to be talking about three albums that were released in the year 1990. Answer a question, talk about what we learned, and then spin the wheel of musical destiny at the end of the show to find out what kind of albums we'll talk about next week. But this time it's all about 1990. That's what I'm talking about! Okay, well, lots happened in 1990. Uh, East and West Germany were reunited, which resulted in the demolition of the Berlin Wall. The Hubble Space Telescope was launched. Iraq invaded Kuwait. Nelson Mandela was released from prison in South Africa. The world lost Jim Henson, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Ava Gardner, and Sammy Davis Jr. But we gained Margot Robbie, Emma Watson, Jennifer Lawrence, and The Weeknd. <laughs> Wait, we gained them? I like that. I like that's funny. <laughs> oh, that's when they were born. Yes, there you go. Uh, the top films of 1990 were Home Alone, Pretty Woman, and Ghost. The top television shows were Roseanne, 60 Minutes, and Cheers. And the top songs were Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, Rock Sets, Must Have Been Love, and Wilson Phillips' Hold On. Now, today, each of us will present an album released in 1990. All right, so, yeah, 1990. I remember that year quite fondly. I was young enough to have no responsibilities, but old enough to try to uh, pretend like I was a grown-up. Sweet <laughs> so times. That's a, yeah, it's a good, good spot to be in. Teenage years in the suburbs. So I didn't really do anything. I already had an album in mind, so I didn't I didn't really listen to anything else this week. Really? It was quite, uh, yeah. That might be the first time. For, yeah. yeah, I decided to take a vacation from driving myself crazy listening to 30 <laughs> records and then can't make a freaking decision. How'd you guys do? Man, I would have thought you would have just gone crazy with 1990. Well, you that, lived it. <laughs> yeah, I could have lost myself, so I decided I was just, just going. For me, there was a lot of, of new stuff I was uncovering. A little Cool J's Mama Said to Knock You Out was something I had been mean to listen to for a long time. I finally got around to pretty enjoyable Record, supposedly one among his best. Another hip-hop record I'll mention, Brand Nubian, One for All, group I was not familiar with, but excellent, excellent record. Also had Tribe Calls Quest debut record that year, which is quite good as well. And I'll mention uh, a fun punk rock record I found from Australia from a band called Hardons. The record is called Yummy. It was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty awesome. It sounded just like mid 90s um like pop punk kind of like that will become popular in like five or ten years so yeah i really enjoyed that as well well you know 1990 is a, about the time i was really kind of finding my own way i, I think with my musical taste but there's a, a couple of records we've we've done before that i wanted to mention uh depeche mode violator Sinead o'connor's i do not want what i haven't got but a, a couple others that i i think I'll, I'll get to at some point an album from a, a 
uh, an artist called The Lightning Seeds, called Cloud Cuckoo Land. Um, it's a, a producer named Ian Brody. And then Brian Eno and John Cale did a collaboration, uh, an album called Wrong Way Up, which is uh, you know pretty interesting. All right, let's go to 1990, musically, of course. You choo-choo choose me? We're going to be talking to Sonic Youth very soon. In the meantime, though, we thought we'd remind ourselves about the history of Sonic Youth, of course, who are arguably one of the most influential bands on the U.S. hardcore scene over the past 10 years. All right, from our 1990 selection, we are indeed talking about Sonic Youth and their 1990 album, Goo. Let's play a little bit from the lead single, Cool Thing. And I don't <laughs> 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 is that Iris? What is that? <laughs> Yeah, the Goo Goo Dolls, that's what we're listening to, right? <laughs> the Goo Goo Dolls? No? Goo. No. It's the wrong kind of goo. Yeah, they totally ripped that off. Alright, so Goo is the sixth full-length album for the four-piece from New York City. New York City? <laughs> Yes, New York City. I think that commercial is from 1990. <laughs> New York City! It's the follow-up to their acclaimed album, Daydream Nation. Yeah, so Cool Thing uh, was a lead single. Supposedly it's about, about LL Cool J and uh, Kim Gordon's meeting with him. Interestingly features Chuck D. was one of those early kind of like rock and hip-hop crossovers, so it's not really, I wouldn't call it a hip-hop song. I think they were recording... F- is it, was a fear of a black planet at the same time at the same yeah. studio and they had, yeah they kind of saw each other made sense to work together would you did you guys hear that song growing up was that like on the radio and like in public not to me i used to see the video on 120 minutes and that was probably that you know that was the only uh, sonic youth song i knew if i had had cable that's all i would have done is watch mtv so <laughs> Yeah, I I did not, so I was I missed a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah, this record definitely got some MTV airplay. Uh, it was kind of their, I guess I would say one of their like mainstream breakthrough. I guess as much as you could say for the Sonic Youth had Daydream Nation got them a lot of notoriety in like the underground scene, but this record was a little bit more stripped down and a little bit more accessible, if you could say that, um, than some of their earlier work. The three words I use to describe it are "goo for all." Ugh. Did you want some of that that good goo, buddy? I don't know. I don't know. Undecided on the goo. <laughs> yeah, I think in particular, this record really put Kim Gordon on the map. She was front and center on vocals on many tracks on this album, and she kind of helped push that more female perspective in music, especially in rock music, which was, you know, coming out of the 80s was very male-dominated time in, in rock, and, and she was kind of bringing this other voice to the uh, to the industry. So I think that was, was pretty cool and pretty exciting at the time. It's interesting that you had, you know, these female bass players in these uh, alternative groups, right? So you had her with Sonic Youth, you had um, Kim Deal from the Pixies, and uh, Darcy, don't know her last name, from Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she just goes yeah. by Darcy. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, a, a blooming trend here at this time. I think uh, it was pretty exciting. We didn't we, we didn't trust them with uh, lead guitar yet. Yeah, I was just gonna say they got <laughs> there. It was like, oh well, you want to be in the band? I guess you could play bass. <laughs> <laughs> Can't mess that up too bad. And a step up from tambourine, so several steps up, many steps up from tambourine. It's a process. It's a process. 
Alright, let's play another cut from the record. This is a little bit of Mildred Pierce. So that's kind of the, the Sonic Youth sound to me that, I don't know, kind of that, that fuzzed out guitar that's, you know, just sort of, it's almost like a, like a painted landscape or something like that. You know, kind of, kind of hypnotic. But Mildred Pierce is actually, so that's a reference to the, the Joan Crawford film. Have you guys ever seen that? It's on, uh, it's on Turner Classic Movies all the time. Well, it's called Mildred yep, Pierce? Yeah. No. Um, but really good movie and, uh, weird scream at the end. <laughs> Uh, you know, because yeah. the song is just kind of going on instrumentally, like like you just heard, uh, and then at the end, all of a sudden, there's like this this hardcore scream. Uh, apparently, that song is one they had come up with back, you know, when the band first started, and they they finally put it on record. Uh, so the, the three words I chose to describe the album uh, are just uh, fuzzed guitar landscapes. You know, so you've got you know two guitars there. It's often heavy and distorted, but it's not like thrashy. I don't know. It's um, I don't even I, I can't really describe it, but it, it's almost like you're just a, a wash in these you know this guitar spiral or or something. And I, I think that you know along with like thrash and, and metal sort of helped that that '90s uh, alternative sound. I, I think this is um, this is an excellent record. It's maybe like the the right balance of accessibility and noise. Um, so there are you know some kind of catchier sort of melodic moments, but they never completely sell out towards that. And they you know they just throw in a, a, a lot of this this noise. I really like the Kim Gordon songs, the the ones that that she sings and, and did the lyrics for. So like Cool Thing. Uh, there's the one Tunic, a, a song for Karen, which is about you know Karen Carpenter uh, and anorexia, which which was really cool. Well, to be clear, anorexia was not cool, but the song right. was. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess this sort of came out of like what they called like a no wave movement. I I like you know some of this sort of like post punk guitar work because you can't really find the blues in it. You know, I mean, the blues guitar sort yeah. of dominates rock and roll, and and it, you know you can't really find it uh, on this Sonic Youth record anyway. I actually read that. Um, is it Thurston Moore? He actually had been listening to Nirvana Bleach when this album was was made, and he was actually trying to capture um, that sound. Nice. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. All right, let me play one more cut from the record. This is the opener, Dirty Boots. Yeah, I enjoy the how well they capture chaos. With their, their noise rock sound. It's chaotic, but there's still like some forward movement happening there. Well, it's the bass is, is taking it forward. The bass groove, I, I feel, is what is driving it forward, even though, you know, you've got lyrics. There are other lyrics in the song, but the dirty boots, baby, is so old school rock and roll, you know? Yeah, totally. So somehow it, it, it worked. So I had never listened to this album in total. I've heard a few of their others over the years. I did enjoy it. The three words I used to describe it was post-punk leap. So you had your post-punk new wave movement in the late 70s, early 80s. Talking Heads had a bass player that was a woman oh, yeah. as well. But yeah, so I, I think that that's interesting. So this this did remind me some of the Talking Heads in terms of the dynamics. <laughs> it just is dirtier. They They put... 
more grit on it. They took some of the, the new wave sheen off of it. What did you say earlier, Don, instead of new wave? Uh, no wave. No wave. I, I think that's a perfect description of what I was thinking. I didn't find that term, but I would have cleverly woven it into my little speech here had I had I known about it. it. This album moved nicely. The songs were interesting. All of them. Uh, I I did like Kim's work as well. The 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 diff, that just totally different vibe on those songs, even though they still had that dirty sound to them so dirty boots i kind of gathered could be about a lot of things youth culture you know what they were calling slam dancing or moshing perhaps it could be traveling you put on your boots and you go on tour you go experience life in your boots the dirtier your boots are the more experience you've had is kind of what i was taking from that baby so yeah all in all i was pretty happy with the listening experience and um i will go back to this and, and maybe play around a little bit more with their discography yeah i think arguably this was the the high peak of their discography um so yeah if you haven't heard goo i think it's definitely one of the more accessible and one of the, the more uh fun to come back to sonic youth records so check it out i'm good enough i'm smart enough and doggone it people like me if you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. And we were going to New York to record, and there were lots of groups like the Peach Boys and the B-Box Boys and the Beastie Boys. So we thought we'd become the Pet Shop Boys, because the boys sounded New York and the well, Pet Shop sounded really kind of English and weird. He said it. I didn't. <laughs> so the album I, I chose from 1990 uh, was one called Behavior by the, the Pet Shop Boys, re- released in October of that year. Uh, here's the opening cut from that album, Being Boring. Well, I've actually been reading uh, uh, some essays uh, about that particular song, and some claim that it sort of tells the the story of the maybe the gay nightlife experience of the 20th century. So, like the first verse refers to the 1920s. So, if you picture, you know, it's the Roaring Twenties and sort of that Great Gatsby time. You know, that might have been an, an era where you know maybe gay men were you know allowed to be sort of out there. And then the second verse is the you know the 1970s and of course uh, you know disco. And then you know the 90s. Uh, you know, he says in in that third verse, he says some are here and some are missing so it's uh you know aids mm. has has taken has taken lives the the uh, the title um being boring is actually uh, a reference to a quote from uh, f scott fitzgerald's wife zelda fitzgerald she refused to be bored chiefly because she wasn't boring uh, and so in that first verse when he when it says someone's wife a famous writer that's the that's the reference there so it's a it's a subtle melody, you know. I mean, it's not the catchiest thing in the world, but it's a it's a pretty deep track. I mean, just all I said uh, about it there. I mean, there's there's a, a lot going on. You know, the instrumentation it it, it sounds like something you know from a seventies R and B record. I, I think only maybe subtler. And actually, uh, Axl Rose is a fan of, of this song. Uh, apparently during their 1991 tour, you know, he went backstage and they had not played that song. It wasn't part of the set list. And, uh, you know, so he, ex- uh, he threw the mic at them and then stormed off. Yeah. Well, he expressed his disappointment. So they ended up, you know, <laughs> later in the tour adding it as, uh, as an encore. So this is the, the fourth studio album by the, the English 
synth-pop duo formed in London in 1981. Uh, it's uh, Neil Tennant, uh, who does the, the vocals, and, and Chris Lowe, who does you know, the keyboard and, and you know, whatever else uh, electronic people do. Uh, the, the three words I, I chose to describe the album are uh, Pet Shop Men. Ooh. It's just a more mature version of the Pet Shop Boys. These aren't the guys that um, you know were singing "Let's Let's Make Lots of Money." I don't know. You know, a lot of times they kind of have like crass lyrics and sort of weird pop cultural funny things to say. There's not a lot of that going on in this album. It's not quite as catchy as their other albums, but. I don't know, it just has more of a, a vibe, right, and a, and a feel that I think carries throughout the album that makes it just sort of a, a, a cohesive piece of music, even though there's, you know, a lot of different subject matter covered, right? So you've got um, sort of the, the gay nightlife and in, in being boring, you've got traditional love and loss, you've got stories, dreams of Catholic grammar school, you've got phony pop stars, alcoholism, the Russian Revolution. So it's all here with these, you know, electronic <laughs> pseudo dancey vibes. Uh, that reminded me of uh, that. Your your explanation there reminded me of when the grandpa in the Princess Bride is trying to convince his grandson <laughs> to listen to him read the book. Yeah. <laughs> they got knights. There's sword fights. <laughs> Giants, monsters, chases, escapes. Right. So I will. I will shut up. Uh, here's a song. Song, uh, called How Can You Expect to Be Taken Seriously? It's got that uh, that classic early 90s mm-hmm. sound in it. Mm-hmm. I can picture Belle Biv DeVoe dancing to that. Oh, sure. Yeah, it's got a little New Jack Swing deal going on yeah. there. So yeah, I, I mean, I think I was probably drawn to that song the most just because I got what it was about, uh, kind of satirizing the big, big rock stars of the time, maybe like Madonna's and U2 and things where these these people are so enjoying the smell of their own farts and being so into themselves. They're, they're so important at that point that how can you expect to be taken seriously when you, you actually seem like a buffoon, right? So that was kind of the vibe I was getting from this. Jealous. Um, <laughs> so the, the three words I chose to describe this album are electronic air supply. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not a big Pet Shop Boys fan, but like, was it West End Girls or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that sound of theirs that was a little more, I guess, a little grittier. And Don, you kind of touched on it where this is a more mature version. It sounds like the electronic version of sort of that adult contemporary to me. The tempos are all kind of very slow and similar. It is dance music, but it's like kind of, you're not going to hurt your hip doing the dancing to <laughs> this. You know what I'm saying? That's true. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of the, you know, and, and I enjoyed it. I liked the record way more than I expected. It's not a knock necessarily. It's just not what I was expecting for it to be sort of this cooled version. Is it synth yacht rock? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's found in all different ways of bringing yacht rock to it. Making everything <laughs> into yacht rock. I don't think it's quite there. I, I, it's, it's a very enjoyable album. 
so the uh, the album was uh, produced by a, a German gentleman uh, named uh, Harold Faltermeyer, mm. uh, who is actually famous for uh, the song Axel F from the yeah. Beverly Hills Cop soundtrack. <laughs> Do you get uh, are you guys familiar with that? Of course. Right. How's it go, Don? Oh, we're getting a copyright strike for that. Oh, definitely. <laughs> you nailed um, it. <laughs> yeah, so um, strangely, like a lot of the, the synth pop records in this late 80s, early 90s period, um, you have these groups still sort of clinging to analog synthesizers you know, for, for one reason or another. Let's hear the, the final track on the album. This is Jealousy. Told you they were jealous. <laughs> he called it. Uh, so I had read that Jealousy was the first song that the, the duo had written together way back in the day. Is that true, Don? Yep. Um, actually, I, I think I've read that other places uh, beyond Wikipedia. So yeah, that, that seems to <laughs> wow, be Wow, okay. Well, well, then, if though. you've got two, <laughs> two sources, then we're good. Uh, it's pretty cool to bring a song back after all those years. I enjoyed that track. And you know, I enjoyed this record overall, um, but kind of felt similarly to Dude as that. It's like it's such a subdued sound they're going for here, especially in comparison to like their slightly more edgy earlier work. That's the word, edgy. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Thank slightly you. Slightly more edgy. Three, <laughs> three words I used to describe this record are never boring, but close. I think there's a handful of songs on here that just don't really move the needle much for me. It's such a, everything's at such a low simmer. Um, I kept like, found myself wondering, like, is there enough going on here to really be saying something? I think the opening cut being boring and a handful of others. I enjoyed So Hard, which is probably the most dancey track on the record. But I think so much of it, it just it feels like they're pushing back that danciness side of their of their sound that they had had for you know a decade or so, and then kind of getting lost in this in between space. I guess it just feels like it's very in between record. Though I think it's very pleasant, and I really enjoyed. Um, is it Tenet? Is that how you say his name or Tenet? Yeah, I really enjoyed Tenet's uh, vocal delivery here. It's like very warm and pleasant, and just neatly articulates every word he utters and you know it feels very british and very european i mean it's unescapable yeah very very buttoned up totally you know charming but for me it didn't really say a lot i didn't really relate to it too too closely i would encourage you guys to spend more time with the record because i remember even you know as a 14 year old boy um, who was a fan of the pet shop boys when i first got this this album i'm like uh, you know it just it did seem boring to me but i listened to it a, a lot and it, it's really become my favorite Pet Shop Boys album and really one of my favorite albums uh, of all time. Really? Now, would yeah. you consider yourself a Pet Shop Boy? I mean, is there like a fan club? <laughs> it's a Pet Shop man. Professor Pet Shop. Professor Pet Shop. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so that was uh, Pet Shop Boys with their 1990 album, Behavior. Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. It's that time on the show when we ask ourselves a question. 
1990 had plenty of memorable moments in the world of entertainment. The Simpsons and Seinfeld were picking up steam. Dances with Wolves and Goodfellas were uh, playing at the, the movies. We got Millie Vanilli admitting to lip-syncing hits such as Girl, You Know It's True. I, did, I forgot they got their Grammy revoked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now no one, no one cares. Yeah. All of those dancing fools that perform lip sync all the time and no one cares anymore. All right. Well, what were you guys up to and enjoying at the beginning of the 1990s? Andy, you were just a young fella. Yeah, I was a wee lad of nine. Yeah. (laughs) So the things that I were into were probably not the things that were super popular at the time, mostly like He-Man and G.I. Joe. But I do remember very clearly first hearing uh, Vanilla Ice and crisscross in school on like a cassette tape someone had on like a walkman we passed it around and i was kind of blown away by that and i rushed out and had my dad buy me uh mc hammers please hammer don't hurt him or whatever so hip-hop i guess was kind of what was cool for me at that time and that was pretty exciting yeah, I mean, I was into stuff like Parker Lewis Can't Lose. <laughs> what, what's, what's Parker Lewis Can't Lose? It was a TV show on Fox that was kind of like a Ferris Bueller type of character. Okay. Smartass. Yeah, a lot of the my a lot of the like jock guys in high school called me Parker because I sort of looked like that kid. I sort of dressed like that kid and I was always like scheming and getting in trouble and stuff. So, I was pretty proud of that at the time. <laughs> Um, I was more of a pop music guy at the time, so top 40 stuff. Uh, without MTV to shape me, I was kind of floating. I'd go from being all, all into hip hop and then I'd go uh, to a bunch of rock stuff. It just, I was not finding an identity and uh, I got there by the mid 90s. <laughs> Give it a year or two. Well, you guys can you know probably guess the kind of music I was listening to. Yeah, I guess like dude, uh, I was I was drawn to the Fox Network, um, you know, which had you know shows like Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which were geared towards towards younger audiences. In Living Color, and uh, you know, was was on at that time. And actually, uh, it only lasted one season, but I was really into that show, uh, Alien Nation. Oh God, uh, yeah. <laughs> What was that about? Aliens. Well, it, it was, yeah, it was based on, there was a film from like 1987 that, that starred like James Caan and Mandy Patinkin uh, about these, you know, the, these aliens who, who who come. So they're sort of introduced into uh, American life and there's, you know, prejudice and stuff like that. And so alienation, you actually have one of the, the newcomers is, you know, how they're uh, referred to, you know, a newcomer is, is a detective. He got partnered with that guy that looked like Mc jagger right yep yes wow. yeah but the thing i mean andy these were just like regular people except they were bald their their head was shaped a little funny and it had dots on okay. it <laughs> they would get drunk on sour milk yeah. oh god so this is a yeah. comedy like a no no this is a this drama is a serious, man oh. yeah, kind of sci-fi <laughs> drama okay. it only uh, it only lasted one season but there was such outcry from fans like me that that they did end up making like four or five tv movies movies afterwards hmm. kind of continuing the the story uh anyway Sounds so epic. uh yeah it <laughs> certainly was I, I i'm sure that's really easy to find now uh if you want to help out the show gift don the dvd box set of alien <laughs> nation what were you doing in 1990 what were you uh enjoying uh let us know hit us up on the socials and uh, the discord albumnerds.com slash discord uh, the name Alice in Chains comes from uh, our pet goat, Alice. Or our next-door neighbor, Alice. Or the next-door neighbor. That's funny. <laughs>
I'm going with Alice in Chains, their 1990 release, Facelift. Why don't we jump right in with arguably their best known song, Man in the Box. Oh, what's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Facelift, debut studio album released on Columbia Records, released August 21st, 1990 by Alice in Chains. Uh, they were formed in Seattle, Washington in 1987. Original lineup here, Lane Staley on vocals, Jerry Cantrell guitar and vocals, Mike Starr on bass, and Sean Kinney on drums. They're considered one of the pioneering groups of the grunge music movement. These bands were starting to get signed, but they were to a major label, they were more viewed at the time in the metal space because there really wasn't anywhere else to put them. And they actually had a hit, a gold record before Nirvana, before grunge in Seattle busted wide open. So I, I kind of think they have a special place where they didn't need that. They were already establishing themselves and they probably would have been a metal band with a different take on it. Hmm. But I, they wouldn't have been thrown into that uh grunge thing i could you know they're like opening for metallica and bands like guns and roses and stuff i think they would have been in that category the three words i used to describe this album were metal with rust the seattle sound was a lot of things metal punk hard rock forged after years of being in a rainy sort of scene that was all to itself and i think that that kind of atmosphere of these these bands competing to play in clubs built this dark dank thing that became Alice in Chains. It's a rainy dark sound they have developed here. Yeah, it's heavy and slow. It's hard to put your finger on what's dark about it. I mean, the lyrics are somewhat, but it's just that. There's a weight. That guitar sound. Yeah. It sits on your chest. It's the beginning. It's the the blend of those vocals between Jerry and, and Lane. Lane takes a lot more of the lead here than he does later as they develop their sound and got more into those harmonies, that haunting harmony, that darkness. I mean, there's just something so dank about all the songs, even though these are not nearly as dark as it gets later. This is before Lane was losing himself to drug addiction. There is, aren't songs about that here, uh, which is part of what makes this album very enjoyable to me, why I like it so much as, um, as the years have gone on. The first one I got was Dirt, and then I went back and got this, and, and now I, I think I prefer this one just because it doesn't have that... I know too much about what happened to Lane and and his struggles with drugs and overdose, so it's nice to just hear them be them. All right, why don't we uh, listen to a little bit of I Can't Remember. Yeah, to me this very much sounds like a debut, a band that has some cool ideas, and some talent, but still trying to figure out how to use everything together and how to, to play as a group. The three words I use to describe it are put back in the box. <laughs> it's not <laughs> quite done yet. The parts are here, but I'm not sure they really understand how to use everything together yet. The beginning of the record, I think, is excellent. If this was like a four-song EP, I think this would be heralded as one of the, the triumphs of the era, but I think it does lose its way as it continues on, and there's a, a handful of well, a lot of tracks, I think, just kind of stumble about, don't have much direction or momentum. 
But there is just some inherent things that the group has, I think, are great. And, you know, they develop them later on in their career. And I think that becomes a little more interesting. But, you know, there's there's the pieces that are here. Bleed the Freak, I think, is could have been like a, a pretty big single if they had yeah. released that at the time. The rest of the record, I was just surprised at how sort of blindly it navigates itself. That's, that's how I felt. This exercise and listening to it, I, it was way better than I remembered. It's been a while since I listened to it. And I had always felt the same, that it was top heavy, that the best stuff was at the beginning. But I found as I listened to it, I was really starting to enjoy songs like Love, Hate, Love, and I Ain't Like That, and Confusion. I kind of changed my mind. I mean, it's kind of, it's almost like two different EPs in a way. <laughs> That second half has its own sort of flavor, and it's a little more, uh, well, it's a little less heavy, but a little bit more. I think that's where they're, the playground where some of the future sounds is coming from is in that that area, that yeah. second half. Yeah, you can hear them experimenting and trying things out for sure. All right, well, why don't we listen to one of those later tracks, Love, Hate, Love. Yeah, it's one of the, I guess, more like a slower and uh, kind of more epic track. I believe it's the, the longest one on the album. I wasn't sure exactly what to make of the lyrics. Almost sounded like he was, uh, you know, going to murder somebody. Um, I did. Uh, I found a quote from that's uh, attributed to Staley. I mean, I guess you never know. But he said, uh, that was a song about myself and my girlfriend. And I wrote it during a time when I was treating her really badly and didn't know how to break the pattern. It was kind of therapeutic, you know, when you really don't know how to break a, a sick pattern. Then you write it down and sing it and it kind of breaks the pattern. It's hmm, cool. Yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting. And I like the idea that, you know, he's actually using, you know, a, a lyrical exercise to, you know, a, as as therapy. The three words I, I chose to describe the album, uh, it's actually more than three words, hard rock, thrash, and rain. Um, similar to, to what you guys already said, right? So, you know, it's like a, a fusion of... I think more of your traditional sounding kind of bluesy rock, like from Aerosmith and ACDC, but I think it's also informed by like the the thrash of Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax. And it actually, I mean, now that I, I think about it, I feel like maybe Alice in Chains more than the other grunge bands maybe maybe used more of that thrash sound than than the others did. Uh, maybe not Soundgarden. I feel like maybe Soundgarden, but I feel I don't remember a lot of thrashing from like Pearl Jam. Yeah, and like Soundgarden to me had more of a Motorhead ishness to them. Yeah, oh, that's true. Maybe because of bad Motorfinger. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, that makes sense. Yeah, and so of course the you know I, I do think that the rain of of Seattle probably you know has an influence uh, on, on these bands. So there there is that darkness. It's cool that they're able to create that sort of dark atmosphere without a lot of extra instrumentation. You know, it's it's just guitars. I I didn't hear a lot of strings or or keyboards thrown in, and so they're able to kind of use the empty space. I I think to you know create that that dark vibe, which is which is really cool. Listening to to this album and, and paying attention, I was really blown away by by Staley's vocals. I mean, they're just so yeah. charismatic, and it's not something I ever uh, appreciated. I mean, I think early on, I mean, I was just not open to this kind of thing when I was young, but it was just the guy going, nah, nah, nah. Um, but <laughs> I mean, even in the cut you played of Man in the Box, I mean, his the way he's singing just changes so much. He ends up like kind of crooning at the end, and he's just got so much power behind it. 
it and uh so different from like the metal singing of uh, like dio or axel right. rose you know yeah. um i guess kind of somehow like a a masculine vibe to it or, or, or something. I don't know. That's again, I said it earlier. Part of why I learned to really appreciate this album is it's, I just get to hear more lane. Yeah. Soaring and let, you know, I love the, I love the interplay with Jerry, but it got more and more Jerry. I think probably as Lane was less and less reliable to show up to the studio, that kind of thing. Uh, and he, Jerry took more weight on. So hearing it be Lane's show, I think I've, I really appreciated that over the last uh, week listening to this. I also like that even in the darkness, the dankness of this, there's at, at the very end. Chocolate, baby. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was gonna ask you about that part. What is that? <laughs> it's from Coming to America, the the band playing at, at the fundraiser was Sexual Chocolate. Uh, uh, that came out in '89. So I, I just obviously he was a fan, or they were a fan of that movie, and just throw in at the very end of your record the serious like raw thing, yeah. and then. Sexual chocolate, baby. And I remember hearing that and being like, that's cool. <laughs> it's surprising listening to the record. It doesn't fit in at all. <laughs> <laughs> so they were having fun, and it doesn't sound like they're having fun no. throughout the course of the record, but they were. All right. So, yeah, I, I, you know, 1990 was a varied year in music, but some really cool stuff was, was popping. And uh, I think we. We covered a, a, a nice array of it today, but uh, Allison Chains, I know you all know it. You've heard the songs. You've probably heard Man in the Box a million times, but I encourage you to go revisit Facelift. I found a lot more there than I than I thought there was uh, when I was younger, so uh, highly recommend Allison Chains, Facelift. All right, so we went back in the DeLorean to, to 1990. and uh, checked, again. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> my calculations are correct. Uh, and yeah, so we, we presented some some uh, uh, interesting albums from 1990. What did we learn? 1990. I mean, it's definitely a transitional period in music. I mean, you have hip-hop breaking through to the mainstream, and you have some obviously the beginning of the grunge movement happening and you have a bunch of things kind of coming to an end in, in 80s rock. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think the good stuff, at least for me, is yet to come in the decade, but uh, it's cool to hear kind of like, I don't know, we've talked about before on the show, like, it's like how the decades aren't really delimiters of music styles or just, you know, 10-year increments and you can kind of hear some things from the 80s bleeding over into the 90s but there's also a lot of new, cool new ideas that are just taking taking root here so for me probably not my favorite year in music but i think uh i think there's a lot of good ideas here that would become pretty interesting in a few years yeah for me it was less about what was going on in music and more about just thinking about the years of my pre-adulthood and how they were full of music and memories. And I'm just really thankful that I had the opportunity to drink all this in, that I lived a life where I wasn't having to struggle. I had food to eat. I had a place to live and leisure time to listen to music and let that be the soundtrack to my life. So that got this exercise going back to 1990 made me think a lot about that time and how free I was to just drink it all in. Thanks, mom and dad. And eat Cool Ranch Doritos. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way. I mean, I guess I, I remember this time fondly because, again, you know, it's when I was really getting serious uh, about music. My family had a CD player, I think 
since like 1987, but I finally got uh-huh. one, um, you know, from my bedroom that year. Uh, and in fact, that Pet Shop Boys CD was one of the, the first ones I, I had. So it was just, uh, it was an exciting time. And it, there really is a, a lot of interesting music, particularly like in the alternative area, you know, because it's before it, it kind of, you know, really blew up and kind of got hijacked by MTV, you know, so groups like, you know, Sonic Youth and the the Pixies, Jane's Addiction, you know, it was really, you know. Husker Du. Yeah. So it was a more, you know, I, I think it was just a, a colorful time in, in music. Yeah, living color, you could say. And that's one to grow on. I'm your density. I mean, your destiny. Uh, all right, boys and girls, it is that time once again. Gather around, put on the old hypercolor t-shirts, and we can uh, breathe colors on each other's clothes. Nice. Let's give that wheel of musical destiny a spin and see what fate has in store for us next week. Are you prepared to have your mind blown? It is time to explore rock music at its most progressive. This week you will be exploring 1970s progressive rock albums. Buckle in boys, it's going to get weird. Ooh, 70s prog rock. Yes. Quick reminder, we do have two open Album Notes Hall of Fame votes in progress. We're voting on Sly and the Family Stones. There's a riot going on. And Roxy Music's Avalon. If you have an opinion, either yay or nay, you can go to our website, albumnerds.com, or join us on Discord, albumnerds.com slash Discord, and uh, rock the vote. Get involved. What's your favorite progressive rock album from the 1970s? What else are you listening to? Let us know. Join fellow album nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Album Nerds. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you for joining us here on the Album Nerds Podcast. We'll catch you next time with some prog rock. Get ready for my my, uh, my 10 minute drum solo here <laughs> thanks for listening everybody we'll catch you next week must have been love but it's over now <laughs> oh. <laughs> I tried thank god it's over now I needed more air it's an air supply <laughs> that is the joke <laughs>